Hello and welcome to episode 115 of Fergo and the Freak. I'm that bloke from Rugby League Project, Andrew Ferguson. You can find me on Twitter at AndrewRLP. Joining me once again is the glorious League Freak. You can find me on Twitter at League Freak. How you going there, mate? Uh, glorious. I've uh, had a really good day. How, how was your day? Uh, solid. Excellent. I, had, I um, got asked to post some stats on Twitter. I posted said stats and then some clowns decided to have a go at me because I posted said stats. Um, it's quite funny, to be honest. I wasn't really upset by it, but it's, it's amazing how some people get their panties in a twist over boring stats. <laughs> yeah, I know that when I follow somebody that's a known rugby league statistician, I get upset when they start posting stats, Hey, Yeah, it's a bit out of the blue, really, isn't it? Yeah, especially ones that have a, a historical slant on the game that have been requested from them. Um, or, ones that, just, or ones that don't matter. <laughs> yeah, there's, well, there's just no place for that in the sport, no. I don't think. I should have known better. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you learned your lesson. I have. And... So, so what I've decided to do is instead of talking about stats, I'm going to talk about history again. Yeah, well, you know, you got to stick to what you know. Well, one of them then, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll do stats that. are out. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about another another key figure from the very birth of the game of rugby league and one that very few people would know about unless they've read my articles, I guess. And this is about the first referee, Edward Ted Hooper. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, this is really important to me because during this story, this is a football dude. You know, this is somebody that is just a rugby league person. And I think these days, we don't think of referees that way. And I don't like that we don't think of referees that way. And this story shows that, you know, referees are football people too. And I love this story. And I, I've just gone by some of the things you've told me. Um, I love this story. So, yeah, I'm look, looking forward to this one. All righty. So in 1907, there was a small group of eight men who became the founding fathers of Australia's rugby league referees. And... Edward Hooper was the man who was elected to be their boss. So he was the first referee's boss. Mm-hmm. Um, very little is known about this small group because everyone's focused on rugby league, the breakaway game and all the players and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, referees were obviously important. You needed to have them. Mm-hmm. Um, so a bit about a bit about Hooper before, before that moment. He was born in Kent, England in 1871 um, and was immediately pretty keen in sports and fitness. He moved to Australia and almost immediately found work with the Randwick Council as manager of the Surf Pavilion at Clovelly Beach. It was a job that he loved and held down for many, many years. Um, and obviously, it was in a time when cars didn't exist, so everyone travelled to the beach um, by steam engine, by tram, or by foot. And every summer, Hooper's job would be one of the most vital and important um, because he was managing the, the chain sheds as well, so he needed to make sure people had one to go into, get him in, get him out, as well as doing some work as a lifesaver as well. Um, so because of the, the long hours and the physicality of his work, he, he eventually decided to buy a house on Arden Street in Coogee so he didn't have to travel too far to and from work every day. Um, he began playing rugby union nor, uh, to start with as a centre. At the ripe age of just 27, he made his first grade debut for Surrey Hills and he played with them from 1899 till 1902. In 1903, he moved to East, and also in 
and moved into the second row. Um, became renowned as one of the smartest forwards in the state. That year, he was selected in a New South Wales touring squad that toured the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales before playing an official game for the, the New South Wales team alongside future rugby league pioneer Arthur Hennessy. In 1903, Hooper also won his maiden first grade premiership. He left the East Clubs at the end of 1904 and joined Sydney before announcing his retirement from the playing field after the 1905 season, the age of 29. Wow, he uh, didn't play for very long, did he? No, you sort of... Um, he's just one of those sort of solid players that just sort of... You know, I think he played for the enjoyment of the game more than anything, mm-hmm. as a lot of players would have done at the time. But he was sort of just a regular reserve-grade sort of player. Yeah. And then got a call up into first grade and just took the opportunity with both hands and really went... It, it makes you wonder how far he could have gone if he had got that chance in first grade four or five years earlier. And I tell you what, this is a dude that was born in Kent and found himself basically being a lifeguard on Bondi mm. Beach. Like, man, he he made it. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the 1905 season, he decided to turn his hand to refereeing and quickly became one of the leading officials in New South Wales in 1906 and 1907. Late in 1907, with the discontent amongst rugby union ranks, um growing essentially to a fever pitch, really. Um, the talk of a break, breakaway rugby code grew stronger, and Hooper decided that he wanted to switch codes and referee rugby league instead. Now, that's interesting. I wonder what it was that made him make that decision because, I mean, obviously the financial incentives are there for the players, and I'm guessing there would have been something for the referees, but there must have been... There must have been something extra that pushed him to make that decision. Yeah, look, it probably could have been... I mean, it's hard to know because cause he wasn't that prominent a player. Mm. Very little of is written about him as a as a union player. But he may very well have suffered the same discontent with the Metropolitan Rugby Union as, you know, this huge number of rugby union players did who all switched codes in 1907-08. Yeah. And that may have been the, the motivating factor as to why he wanted to switch. And as you say, like some of these players that were switching were his peers from his playing days. Yeah. And being a, a, a referee in rugby union, I mean, he would have known all of the players that would have switched, you know. Exactly and maybe right. it was just something he believed in. Um, he, he just believed in the, the professionalism aspect of it. Yeah. Um, I think, too, he's... Um... Given that he's a fitness freak, he probably would have liked the faster pace of it as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas rugby union, the referees don't tend to run as much as a rugby league ref would. No, they they go through whistles a fair bit, though, don't they? That's true. That's true. Um, on August 28, 1907, Hooper was appointed the inaugural Rugby League Referees Association President, a role which he held until the end of the 1912 season. Um. Now, onto the money thing. The New South Wales Rugby League actually offered to pay the referees and sideline officials a small sum for each game that they officiated. Hooper, however, moved that the referees should not be paid so that the money could be used elsewhere to ensure the survival and growth of the game. The referees also decided that instead of being paid, they would also donate money out of their own pocket to the game 
Um, so the referee would donate threepence, and the Solomon officials gave a shilling each for every game they're involved in. So not only did they forego money to to be refs, they actually gave their own money as well. That's incredible. So we really did just believe in the new rugby league. Like yeah. that. It, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. Um. And it was when I found this out, and that was that was a fact that came to me from his grandfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, sorry, from his his son. Yeah. Um, the grandfather of the bloke who who I first spoke to with this story. Um, just the amount that they wanted to make sure that this game survived, and yeah. how willing everyone was willing to to tuck in and help out as much as they can. Um, and the referees were, were doing their bit more so than probably a lot of the players were. But mind you, the players are taking a pretty big you know, leap of faith to switch codes and run the risk of never being able to play the, any game ever again. But you know what it does? Like, it, And this is the first group of referees we have in Australia to referee rugby league. It shows that, and I've always said this, the biggest fans of rugby league are referees because they just want to be involved. They just want to do whatever they can. And if they they can't play the game at a first grade level or their playing days are over, they want to contribute in some way. And refereeing is a way to do that. Um, And, yeah, this is an incredible story already. (laughs) Um, So on April 20, 1908, Eastern Newtown kicked off in the first rugby league game under Northern Union rules at Wentworth Park which Hooper was the referee. Um, it was a one-sided game with East winning 32-16. to 16. There was another game that kicked off at the same time as well. Um, but, you know, we're saying Ted Hooper's first year, so we'll just stick with this one. <laughs> he, was, he was the boss as well. That's so, right. Yeah, no, the boss has got to, he's got to get the runs on the board first. Exactly. Um, on May the 2nd, 1908, he then became the first to referee a representative rugby league game in Australia when he officiated the New South Wales versus New Zealand game. By season's end, he had officiated in 11 club games more than any other referee that year. Um, here comes an interesting fact that hasn't been broken. On July 4, 1908, he controlled two consecutive games on the same day. Newtown versus Norse game, which kicked off at 2pm, followed by Bowman and Glebe, which kicked off at 3.35pm. He had wow, about a 15-minute break between the two games. And they were at the same stadium? Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. There wouldn't be... I mean, has that ever happened since? Nope. So he's the only referee in history to have refereed two first-grade matches in the one day. Yep, back to that's back. That's absolutely amazing. Um, which is a, oh, you know, a massive statement about his athleticism and fitness more than anything. Mm. And his commitment to the game as well. Yes, exactly. It makes you wonder, do you think... I don't think a modern-day referee could do that, even with the two-referee system we have in place now. Um, I I just... I think that it would be too much. I think so, too. Because I think, too, in 1908, without taking too much credit away from him, the game was a little bit slower than the game that we've got now because mm. obviously we've got ten metre rule now. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't have that then. They just had a quicker ruck and maul than what we've currently seen in rugby union. Mm. So every time a player was tackled, 
you just played the ball. But you had a similar a similar system with rugby union where instead of you know long passing plays out the back and you only had six tackles, you could just do one out passes from dummy half and just charge into the forward pack again, like you do in rugby union these days. Yeah. So there was still a bit of that in there, but the the ruck was a lot cleaner. Far out. That's that's interesting to think about, though. Is I think you would have to have a referee that maybe had a background in like ultra marathon or something. Oh yeah, they, absolutely. They, you know, you'd have to have some sort of freak athlete. And I mean, that's yeah. what he was for his time for a referee. The endurance to be able to do that much work and constant running. Um, mm. Phenomenal. Uh, he continued to referee in 1909 before deciding to become a part-timer and, you know, focus on refereeing in the lower grades of the Sydney competition. Um, so you can see there that he was still helping the game at 1909, which, as we discussed in a previous episode, was a chaotic year, and mm. especially with finances, you know, practically nil and struggling. Um, him refereeing just saved them a little bit of extra coin as well. And obviously, once the game was sorted out, 1910, he stepped down thinking that there would be, yeah, probably thinking that there were better referees now that should have been in the limelight. So he stepped down and started doing the lower grades instead. Far out. Um, at the end of the 1912 season, he decided to stand out from his position as the referees association president and was immediately selected to manage an as yet undecided Australian rep team that would be the first to tour to New Zealand. The league later decided to send a New South Wales squad to New Zealand. However, it was essentially regarded as an unofficial Australian squad because Queensland in in those days, their game was only uh, one year younger than the New South Wales game. And it was actually still amateur. So, the quality of players in Queensland at the time was a long way below what New, what New South Wales had. Okay. And I guess, uh, like, be, because the New South Wales players were professionals, like, as you say, it was all but, like, a professional Australian team. Pretty much, yeah. So, um, yeah, they, it was all New South Wales players, but for, I dare say, for advertising to try and, Big it up a little bit and make it sound a bit more impressive. They were often billed as Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, the tour started with two easy wins for the Blues. In the second game, Sid Dean was charged with an illegal strike on an opponent and the New Zealand Rugby League decided to suspend him for the remainder of the tour. The New South Wales team threatened to go on strike. But Ted Hooper, who had now become the manager for this team, stepped in and mediated a lesser suspension for Dean, which ensured that the tour would continue and Dean would be able to play at the end of the tour as well. Far out. He still got... He must have been somebody that um, everyone took notice of when he, when he spoke, you know? I mean, to be the manager of the referee straight away and then to go on and be the team manager of the New South Wales team. Like, he must have been a, a leader as a person. Yeah, and one thing I've got... In, very thoroughly throughout this whole research was very highly respected by everyone, players, Mm. officials, everyone else, not just in Australia, but overseas as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, this is a bit that I know that you're excited about. I love this. This is honestly one of the great sports stories I've ever heard. Right. So 
on this tour, Hawke's Bay was was um, supposed to host New South Wales on Saturday at the same ground that the New Zealand Rugby Union were using on Sunday. League officials asked the union if they could use the newly erected stand that the New Zealand Rugby Union had assembled at the ground. The union officials agreed, but only if the New Zealand Rugby League and the New South Wales Rugby League would pay an exorbitant price with which they declined to do. So, on the eve of the league game, rugby union officials dismantled the stand and took all of the materials with them. League officials arrived at the ground the next morning, ready to play their game, and saw what had happened. So Hooper, along with a number of the New South Wales and Hawke's Bay players, along with local residents, all chipped in with materials of their own and labour to build their own stand, which was completed in time for the game. Absolutely unbelievable. And, and you know what? It shows rugby league spirit that it doesn't matter what you do, this game will, will take place. It doesn't matter who tries to stop it. It doesn't matter how they try to stop it. Rugby league will take place. And it shows that that spirit of the pioneers of the game. And, and you know, they, the pioneers are still there at this point. Nothing was going to stop them. I, I just love it. They rebuilt the stand. Incredible. So here's a, a little um, a little snippet from an article about that. Um, it said, Considerable interest was created by the action of certain rugby union officials with regard to a special stand which was erected for the North v South match. The rugby union offered the league the use of the stand at what was considered an exorbitant figure. Failing an agreement, the union officials dismantled the stand, carted the timber away. The league officials started to work at midnight and, helped by the visiting team and many residents, re-erected the stand before the match started. No one was charged an admission fee. Oh, wow, that's amazing. You know, the, the incredible thing is those rugby union officials and they took the, they're like they took the timber away and everything and they must have been really pleased with themselves. And then somebody's gone in at some point and said, they're playing and they rebuilt a whole stand. <laughs> Can you imagine what they felt like when they heard that? Oh, yeah. Now, <laughs> that game saw New South Wales win 42-9. to and But despite their, their team getting absolutely hammered, the fans and the local residents were so happy with what had happened, they actually donated money to match officials for the game. And Hooper gave half of the monies from this game to the New Zealand Rugby League. Oh, man, that's incredible. What a great story, hey? Oh, it's phenomenal. It really is. Um, the New South Wales team lost to Auckland, and Auckland has always been, even from these early days, one of those teams that Australian teams and, and English teams travelling over there, even the French teams, would struggle to beat. Mm-hmm. The last tour game that Australia lost that wasn't a test match was actually in 1989 against Auckland, and it was the only game they lost on their tour to New Zealand. I didn't know that. I had no idea about that. Where? 26 to 24, I think it was, they lost. And is that a... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, that was the only game they lost on the tour. They beat New Zealand in all three tests, and that's an Australian side that had, you know, Wally Lewis and Peter Sterling, Greg Alexander, all those absolute legends in there. And I guess that's an Auckland, a, a greater Auckland representative side. Um, it makes me wonder if when the New Zealand, well, when the Auckland Warriors, as they were originally called, come into the competition, if they claimed any of that history, 
or if they just left it be. Oh, they yeah, they they decided to leave that be. Yeah. So they wouldn't. I mean, be seen I understand a, that, but but still, that's that's an incredible part of history. Wow. Oh yeah. Um. So yeah, New South Wales lost to Auckland before then going on to beat the New Zealand Test side. The Sid Dean suspension issue arose again. This time, the New Zealand Rugby League decided that they would like to reverse the earlier agreement. So as to retain good relations. Yeah. Um, So as to retain good relations, Hooper agreed. New South Wales went on to complete the tour undefeated. Their tour summary showed an impressive eight wins from their 10 games, along with two draws. And so successful was the tour financially that the New South Wales Rugby League decided to do it all again the following year. Um, Upon his return home, Hooper decided that he wanted to spend more time with his family and stepped out from all duties as a referee. But he was he was later convinced to become a referee selector from 1912 to 1915. So even when he tried his hardest to get away from the game, he mm. still couldn't pull himself away. And I tell you something that I really like: a referee running the referees seems to make sense. Yeah, no one was complaining about referees in these days. No, <laughs> um, except for except for the. Rugby union people in Hawke's Bay. <laughs> they hated they hated him. <laughs> that is for sure. Um, he was again elected as manager of the New South Wales um, team as they embarked on their second tour in as many years to New Zealand in 1913. This time, though, he requested a co-manager in the event that similar incidents from the 1912 tour would arise again. They would be more able to efficiently deal with them if there was two of them. So South Secretary S.G. Ball was named as his co-manager. Oh, man, that's so cool. Uh, this tour, though, was a roaring success with achievements made that have never since been matched. New South Wales generally annihilated their opponents. Uh, let's see if I can find a few quick results here, actually. Okay. Uh, go. They beat Canterbury 45-5. to They beat Rotorua 53-5. to they beat New Zealand 33-19, uh, Wanganui 44-9, Wellington 34-18, Hawks Bay 31-12. They went back there. <laughs> I bet they didn't have to rebuild the stand again. No. Some, some rugby union officials just saved themselves some time. That's right. Um, they then beat New Zealand again 58-19 and then beat Nelson in the last game 66-2. And remember, these in the days when they had three points for a try. Yeah, that's a. I mean, every single one of them games were an annihilation. It was dominant as it could possibly be. Yeah. Um. So returning home once again, Hooper enjoyed his most relaxed season yet as an administrator before his one last hurrah, where he was coerced into another notable first in 1914. This time. He managed the New South Wales side in a tour game against the touring British Lions in the first game that was ever played in Victoria. Oh, 12,000 so cool. 12, fans turned out to see England win 21-15 in a hard-fought contest. So there you go. He's uh, Not only is he a referee and mediating all sorts of squabbles overseas, he's even expanding the game within Australia. That's incredible. Whereabouts did they play in Victoria? Was that in Melbourne? Yeah, it was in Melbourne. Um, yep. Let me find the venue here. 
It was. There we go. It was the last match of the tour. It was at the MCG. Oh, wow. That's amazing. There you go. Um, and the referee in that game was one of the referees from 1908 as well, Tom McMahon. And oh, that's very cool. Tom McMahon's son also became a referee. and that, His name was also Tom McMahon. He was a prominent first-grade referee as well. So there's that for a pretty uh, interesting little link there. Mm. In 1915, the New South Wales Rugby League decided to disband the Referees Association, meaning that the game's controlling body now organised the officials for each game, whereas it had previously been organised by the Referees Association. They immediately appointed Hooper as a referee selector, which was a position he held until 1925. We'll get to that year later. Yeah. In 1919... The 48-year-old Hooper was graded as the first-grade referee for the first time since 1909, but he wasn't required for duty. Um, he put himself up to be graded purely because of the loss of officials due to World War One, and there was also a massive influenza outbreak throughout Sydney at the time. Mm-hmm. So he was just sort of putting himself there as backup if it was required, but he didn't need to have to play any... didn't have to referee any games. Um, but at this stage, he pretty much spent the rest of his life through this period as a referee selector, um, sometimes helping with a bit of referee coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we found, I might even do a, another episode on this some, later on about the, the Maori team that came through in 1908. Um, some of the referees that often help struggling teams or new teams uh, learn how to play the game. Mm-hmm. So one of his contemporaries from 1909 was um, a referee by the name of George Boss. And he helped the, the visiting Maori team learn how to play the game of rugby league when they landed in Australia. And there was a bit of conjecture over him refereeing games that they, that team was involved in. But for the most part, it was completely acceptable and, and understood because they wanted to try and make rugby league the best game possible. And so that was just one of the other things that they did. Yeah, and I love it. I love it that... You know, they're seen as part of the game. They're as much a part of the game as the players. And I I would love to get back to that. I'd love to see referees being treated like that again. That they're not outsiders, that they're not something different. They're they're us. They are rugby league as much as anyone else. Yeah, I mean, dedicating their life to a game, knowing that they're going to be making calls that we're not they're not going to make friends doing it. Yeah, and I'd I'd like to see I, I guess once you get away from the field, because I understand that the referee, like if you're a player, the referee is something you've got to beat as well um, on both sides. It, it, just like you've got to beat the, uh, you know, the conditions at the ground, the travel, you've got to beat everything to win a game. Um, but I'd like to see away from it, the referees embraced more by players and coaches and administrators and everyone, even fans. That's why I love talking to referees because they're experts in the game and they, they absolutely love the game as much as anyone. Oh, they certainly do. Um, it was around this time too, that he was made a honorary life member of the New South Wales rugby league. So yeah, it shows no you shows you how much respect everybody had for him and how how prominent he was within the game. 
Mm. Um, so now we get on to 1925, and he's just working as an official now. He doesn't referee games anymore. He's retired from all on-field officiating. However, he travelled with the New South Wales team to Brisbane for the fourth interstate game um, between New South Wales and Queensland. At half-time, a novelty game between the Brisbane and Ipswich referees was scheduled. So it's just two teams of refs going against one another for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, with Hooper as the honorary referee for this match, it was his first time, first time refereeing a game since 1919. <clears throat> it was all sort of fun and mucking around and, you know, it wasn't serious. And the crowd were actually all laughing and having a great time. They loved it. Once the 15-minute game had finished, everybody left the field. The crowd were applauding and cheering. Um, Hooper waved and smiled as he entered the change room. He went to the shower and suddenly, with no warning, collapsed on the floor. The doctors ran in, but they were too late. Edward James Hooper had died. The cause of death at the time was recorded as shock. He was just 54 years old. Oh, man, he was only young, too. Um, And right up to his last day, he was part of rugby league. Yeah. He kept refereeing as well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You don't see this too often, but... The Rugby League News dedicated a whole page to an obituary for him shortly after his death. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I was just going to read a bit out from that. Um, it says, Mr. E. Hooper, the founder of the New South Wales Rugby Football League Referees Association, life member of the New South Wales Rugby League and manager of the team that toured the New Zealand in 1912-1913, died suddenly after a cold shower bath in Brisbane last Saturday afternoon, 10 minutes after refereeing a match between Nunda and Brisbane prior to the interstate fixture. Um, I think that was the referee's one. Anyway, Ted Hooper was one of the most popular men associated with the rugby league, and his death will come as a great shock to his legion of friends. He went to Queensland on the previous Monday with the New South Wales team, accompanied by Mrs. Hooper. He leaves a son and a daughter. Mr. Hooper, who was manager of the Clavelli Surf Sheds, was a good forward in his rugby union days, and when the league was formed, he was a referee in that game. He had a genial disposition and appeared in the best of health when he left Sydney. His death will be keenly felt by members of the New South Wales team, now in Queensland, and by his host of friends throughout New South Wales. Wow, what a what a great person. Absolutely. Um, and pretty much everybody who is anybody within the game, um, not just not just officials, but players, other referees, um, counselors, politicians, you name it. Anyone who had any interest in rugby league turned out in his funeral. It was a huge, huge affair. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some other little note on here too. Where did that one go? Here we go. So this one here was... It's disappeared on me now. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Um, this is just a bit more about the death. He says, so news of his tragic death in the shower beneath the main stand spread quickly amongst the spectators and a depression could be felt during the second half. Queensland officials were greatly upset by the, the occurrence and the president, who was also the Minister for Railways, Mr Larkham, did all that he could for the comfort of the bereaved wife. A gloom was cast upon the tour. Yeah, no wonder. So it's... It shows you just, even though he'd retired from being a referee and he'd retired from being 
a tour manager and official. So much respect for the man. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I love that we've got this episode and, and that you've been able to put together um, this vital piece of rugby league history through all the research you've done. Because this is somebody that needs to be recognised um, even today. And it's a story that I didn't know I had never heard before. And I'm so glad that, you know, you've got a chance as a historian to to show this story and give it light. Because this is one of rugby league's, he's a true pioneer of the game. And, he, I mean, his name should be right there with the other pioneers of the game. Um, and, and as you say, you can just tell how respected he was by everyone. Absolutely. Now, there's one one other thing that I left out, mm-hmm. which I, I want to put in at the end. And it's another incident that happened on the 1912 um, New South Wales tour to New Zealand. Okay. So this is the seventh game. So getting, this is after the one with the stands. Mm-hmm where there was a game between New South Wales and Canterbury. There was a, this is the first time that I've found so far where a game had two referees. Oh, wow. And what happened in this one is uh, referee R. Oliphant, he was deemed to have been so poor a referee in the first half that both sides agreed to have him replaced at half time. And it just so happens that a replacement referee was... Mr. A. E. Hooper, no relation to Ted Hooper, who was the manager for New South Wales in that one. Mm-hmm. It appears, from what I've found, that Mr. Oliphant may have been a little inebriated. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you imagine how sloshed he must have been <laughs> for both teams to get together at halftime and say, we can't have that happen in the second half. We can't have any more of this. Please, can we get rid of him? And both sides went, yeah, we need to get rid of him. Wow. So A.E. Hooper was one of the touch judges. He came on and became the referee for the rest of the game. I don't know what they did for a second sideline official. For all we know, they may have just gone with one. Yeah. But, but, I mean, geez. I, I would guess that's maybe the only time in history that that's happened just because the teams agreed on it rather than like, I mean, we've seen referees get injured and stuff like that. I've never heard of a referee being agreed to be replaced by, can you imagine having a break it to him that he'd been replaced by both teams? (laughs) Just hand him a whiskey bottle, mate. Just get this one out. Here you go. (laughs) Just convince him that the game was over. Yeah. (laughs) That's full time, mate. You done well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ted Hooper's a referee. He um, officiated 17 league games in 1908-1909. That's first grade games. Mm-hmm. And two games on the 1908 Maori Tour, and they were both New South Wales versus New Zealand Maori. And um, one game from the All Golds Tour when the All Golds returned to Australia in 1908. And that was New South Wales versus New Zealand. And his last rep game was when the All Blacks were, they came back over in 1909 and he officiated the Newcastle versus New Zealand game up in Newcastle. So 21 games all up at, at the elite level. Far out. And, and that was in the first two years, 1908, 1909. So he was busy in those two years. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, 
what an incredible career and a really varied career that he had in the game. He must have, there must have been something about the professional code that excited him and he just knew was the right way to go because he, he jumped straight into it on so many different levels. Yeah, and he was all on board. There was no half in or half out or any half measures. He was all in and practically investing his own money in it. Well, not even investing. He was just donating his own money to the game. Mm. Um, So it was after I wrote this article Mm -hmm. that I went, you know what? I think a lot of us can at times be too harsh on referees when you know that some of them, the very first ones, were doing this to help the game out. Mm-hmm. So I immediately sort of started easing back a little bit. Now, another thing about this old story, okay, why I love it so much, this is the first ever published article that I had that made it into a rugby league magazine. It was it went into the Men of League magazine. Oh, that's very cool. When was and, that? How many years ago was that? Uh, I think it was 2008. Yeah. Wow. And just as a bit of um, white entertainment, I guess, Mm-hmm. The story about how I got onto this this whole story about Ted Hooper mm-hmm. is one of the biggest flukes ever. Go for it. Okay. I want to hear so, it. So I'm down here in Melbourne. I'm working as a um, real estate data analyst. So as far removed from rugby league as you could possibly get. Mm-hmm. The wrong state, completely wrong industry. And... It's my lunch break, so every time I'm on my lunch break, I'd have a look on, on Rugby League Project to see if there's anything on there that I need to fix up or what I was working on, that sort of stuff. And this bloke who had come down from Brisbane was in the sales team at the same company, and he walks past and sees Rugby League written on the top of the page from the website banner. He says, oh, my great-grandfather used to be a referee back in the early days. He might have been in the first game, I think. And immediately, it's the only time I've got an ego, kicks in and goes, yeah, bullshit. I'm going to look this up and find out for sure. <laughs> so I type his name in there. Fucking me, daddy's there. Yeah. I look at him and say, mate, do you have a like a grandfather that spoke to him that I could have a chat to him? He said, yeah, absolutely. I'll give you his phone number and you can have a yak to him. Like, oh, this is awesome. So I remember his grandfather. He says, oh, I didn't, know that. I didn't think anyone would remember him. And he gave me little bits of information, like the stuff about how he grew up working on the beaches, where how he bought a house out there. Um, the refusing to be paid to be a referee mm-hmm. and donating money back to them. Uh, all that sort of stuff. He also had uh, one of the referees caps and his whistle. Oh, wow. Did you ever get to see them? I didn't, but he did donate them to, I believe, the SCG Museum Trust. Okay. So if you go to the SCG and have a look around through their museum, you will see them there. That's very um, cool. That's, that's pretty awesome. Um, but he didn't have much more information above that. So uh, after all this research I did, I I sent him every, I printed out every single article I could find that had Hooper's surname in it, and just sent them all through along with the article that I finished when I finished writing it. He's like, I had no idea he was this important to the game. Mm. I mean, oh, this is pretty cool. This bloke's just learned more about his father than he probably would have known. Yeah. Um, I need to do more of this. And it's been the motivating factor the whole time with my history stuff. I don't go out chasing the the daily messenger stories because everyone's done that. I go looking for the more obscure one. Yeah. Because I want yeah. to learn about someone new and learn and try and teach people about something new within the game that's still pretty impressive like this guy. 
So that's been the motivating thing the whole long and whole way along, and it's comes from an absolute genuine fluke. <laughs> wow! And it, it all started with this, and so this was like your first history piece, like completely your first history piece in that you did the research and all that, and like I mean, you pieced together this through, um, you know, his son obviously, and yep. uh, fr- from what had been written in. Uh, in rugby league news and and places like that and in, in uh well at the time rugby league news stuff. wasn't wasn't available to me because it was only in the it was only in the state library in new south wales mm-hmm. and i didn't get a chance to go up there and see that so i didn't get the the rugby league news stuff until they digitized it um 18 months ago oh wow yeah so this is lots of phone calls and lots of trips to the the victorian state library which had a lot of city newspapers on the microfiche Mm-hmm. So I could go through all of it there, and um, yeah, it was. I, I absolutely love that process. No wonder, and especially like for such an incredible story as well. Like it must have been incredible to to find the next thing and the next thing, and it, it to almost reveal this incredible life that this man led, and an incredibly important part of the game's early history. Yeah, I must admit, for my first ever article, I honestly thought it would be about a player or a team. Mm-hmm. Never would I have thought it would be about a referee. And so glad it was. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, how I got into Men of League, um, the magnificent uh, historian, Sean Fagan, he saw my article. I put. I just put up on my blog thing that I had. I was only just started up, so about twenty people may have read it. And he saw it and said, "Man, I told the people at Men at League about this. Um, you need to. Uh, you should have it up in their magazine." I was like, "That'd be awesome." So they contacted me and said, "Yeah, we'll have that." And you got any more you want to put in? I was like, "Oh, yeah, okay. I won't say no." But then I had to go and find another topic and start researching other stories. <laughs> but um, but it, it got you on a pathway, hey? And yeah. Sometimes you just need that. I mean, to start off with such a great story is is kind of special in itself. But, you know, this is the thing that got you down the pathway of, like, writing your book even. It's it's yeah. amazing. Absolutely. It is. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, and, yeah, I, I always call it the greatest fluke I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. It's a phenomenal story, Ted Hooper. Um yeah, I can't really think of anything else to say about him. We pretty much covered it all. Just, you know, lived his life for the game and, and you know, died at the game. Yeah, an, incre- an incredible man. An incredible man. And, uh, look, thank you so much for bringing us this story too because, uh, as you've said, you you did work hard to, to get this story together and it, it really is. It's a piece of rugby league history and it's one that might have been forgotten if not for you bringing it all together like that. So... Um, I know you don't like praise, <laughs> but yeah, you've, you've, you've you, done you just, seriously, <laughs> you, you deserve it though. You deserve it because uh, this was one of the best stories in the game, I think. Yeah, I, I I love this story. It's it's not just because of the first one. It's just because it's it is about a, a virtual unknown today, mm. um, and I love that because you you actually learn about someone who was who should be more well known and was immensely vital to the game. I mean, he's a life member. Yeah, 
he should be known more. So that was it's it's really good to bring that person's um you know, career and what he's done to bring it forward and bring it to the bring it to light, I guess. And you know what's really cool is that with the birth of rugby league in Australia and I guess the birth of sports in general, you get a you almost get a mythology that comes out of it and certain people uh, move to the front of the queue when it comes to telling that story. And I feel as though with Ted Hooper, if you went back to those people and you told them the story about the birth of the game, they would look at you and say, like, how can you tell this without Ted? Like, we were all talking with Ted. He was really important to all of this, you know? So to to get somebody like that um, back involved in the history of the game's um, birth is just brilliant. I love it. Yeah. And that, that tour in 1912, my God, some of the oh, stories. <laughs> rebuilding an entire stand. <laughs> Dealing with just, a drunk ref. Having to uh, deal with a pissed-off team who's just had one of their star players suspended for the whole tour. Um, you brought peace to all of that. Unbelievable. Yeah. Really, really incredible. That story about the uh, the stand being torn down by the rugby union, <laughs> the rugby league fellas and the locals rebuilt it. That, to me, is the most rugby league story ever. And if anybody wants to know why this game cannot be killed off by anybody or anything, you just got to tell them that story because that sums up rugby league people. Just pig-headed, and we're going to play this game whether you want us to or not. Yeah, passionate to it, to to a fault almost. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, magnificent. Um, yeah, I suppose that wraps this episode up. It's a bit of a quick one compared to our normal ones. Yeah, and look, and that's fine. I, I would like to say to everybody, if you enjoyed this story, go to patreon.com slash rl project and donate to the rugby league project patreon page um it allows andrew to spend more time bringing together rugby league history pieces like this um it allows him more time to work on the rugby league project website and this is something that Andrew loves doing it. I like talking to Andrew about all of this because he's a footy head like I am and he does all of this stuff. But he's putting together really important pieces of rugby league history. And I would love to see the game get behind it more and get behind the, the almost the cause more because these are parts of rugby league history that are being uncovered and brought forward that we can't lose. It's really, really important. So I would just tell everyone, go to uh, patreon.com forward slash RL project and donate because uh, the game deserves to have its history brought forward like this. And and publicly available. That's the thing I like about oh, it is we're, we're making yeah. it all free to everybody. And, you know, obviously a lot of stuff I do, I'm going to end up putting it on here anyway. So you don't have to worry about reading it either. <laughs> yeah. And like, there's no paywalls. It's not guarded or anything. It's it, like when you put it out there, you you just like spread it everywhere. Get like I want everyone to know this story. I want everyone to have these stats, and that's the the beautiful thing about it. So yeah, I just everyone should get behind it. I fully agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just want to say just quickly one little shout out to uh, Michael over at the League Digest uh, on their podcast. Uh, last week they they put up 
uh, four different little episodes, and it was all from two or three speakers from the Tom Brock lecture that happened uh, a week or two ago. And it was like a day-long talk, and they had 10 speakers on there, I think. And they talked about all different things about the game, some about talk, discussing different types of alternatives for Golden Point. Another one had um, looking at Aboriginal participation in the game, Yeah, a few profile pieces about past players, fantastic stuff. Go over there and listen to it. Um, Michael also gave me too too big a uh, praise on that episode as well. Um, so I just want to say thanks for that. Didn't need to do that, but yeah, I love you for the work you guys do. So thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, well deserved too. Um, I I reckon you're going to be the headline act at the the one of those lectures one day soon. Just saying. Oh, they might have to bring it down here. I keep struggling to find a time to get up there. <laughs> <laughs> And if they, they have it down here, it, it works in works in my favour because then I don't have a crowd of about two or three. <laughs> I don't well, have to get too what, nervous. If they sent it down there for a special occasion, if there was say an Origin game or something, uh, I would go down there and attend it. And heckle. Yeah, well, <laughs> I said this thing the other day because I said that'd be that'd be really cool for him to do, and I said I'd just be at the back going, "Bring on the next guy!" Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Boring, boring. <laughs> but uh, it it would be great. It would be it'd be awesome. It's a story that I think needs to be told. The yeah. digitalization of rugby league history. I think it's an important one. Oh yeah, absolutely it is. Because that's where we're going to. You can't have everything written down anymore. It's got to be digitized. I mean, they're doing it in newspapers everywhere. So mm. yeah, I could go on about that for ages. Anyways. Do you reckon one time in the future, like 100 years from now, someone is sitting down listening to us right now through like some sort of, you know, headset, probably VR or something, listen to us talk about Ted Hooper? They could very well be. And they might even get inspired to, you know, do all the work I didn't get finished on our rugby league projects. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's whoever succeeds you in rugby league project and they're like yeah still at, at, at like 30 <laughs> percent they'll, they'll add up to about 45 by then yeah <laughs> <laughs> they'll be like oh so this this is uh andrew ferguson the famous rugby league historian and this is the other guy whose name we're not allowed to name because it's a war crime if you do uh interesting hmm I wonder what happened there. That sounds like interesting. Yeah. I want to find out what goes on in the future now. Oh, you don't want to know. It's what terrible. Absolutely. You shouldn't have got that hammer. Yeah. It's only going to lead to trouble. Well, you know, someone had to do it. Uh, that's true. Anyways, people, um, you can catch us on Twitter at FergoFreakPod. Um, go over to YouTube, subscribe and like all the videos over there. Um, and yeah. That's pretty much it, I guess. Yeah, well, thanks to everyone for listening and enjoy the game. Yeah, catch us all later.